Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then by all means, please visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply because you potentially could be next joining us on the show. Um, I'm pleased to say that joining me on today's programme on what is unfortunately a great and wet morning here in the capital is Kyle Davies. Kyle is practice lead for integrated technology architecture at CDW UK a company that delivers high-performance commercial services and solutions across both the private and public sectors. Uh, Carl, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the show. Hi Scott, thanks for having me. Real pleasure, Kyle. Uh, not the nicest day for it, but luckily we're indoors and away from the uh, the rain and the wet. Um, I think we should yeah. sort of start by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's really the context in which we're having this discussion. Uh, we're recording this podcast in early August 2021, so COVID-related social restrictions are gone in England, at least for the time being, um, but we're still sort of feeling the effects of the pandemic, aren't we? And we have been now for the best part of the last 16 months. Um, what that pandemic has done is really bring a dramatic change to to our working practices, mainly out of necessity. However, even though we've been apart as teams and we've seen people sort of deployed across the country working from home, many companies have actually found that productivity has gone up or at least remained on a par during the pandemic. So will flexible working be part and parcel of the way that we do business in this country going forward, you feel, even when we hit that point where COVID is no longer an immediate and present danger to life? I think I think it will, yeah. I think I think what we're in the past thing is we'll we'll get to some kind of normality if we want to use that kind of normal kind of phrase, where people will have hopefully a choice to either go to an office or to work from uh, wherever that suits them to an extent, so long as they're doing their job and getting their tasks done and fulfilling their roles within the businesses that they work for. Um, I think if if we think about the current time frame at the moment, where a lot of the um, legislative elements of COVID in the UK, or specifically in England, have been removed almost, and even more changes happening as of Monday this week. Um, we'll be able to then actually get more and more people together. And that that opens up a, a whole different social dynamic, dynamic on do people feel comfortable getting back together? And over the last few months, we've seen offices reopen, we've seen people get back together again, but we've also seen a lot of people very anxious and also extremely nervous about returning to work or even just getting on public transport in the first case. And I know there was an article that I was reading um, about a, a, um, a study that was done in the US specifically um, where people during COVID in the US have actually decided to move from one state to another to get closer to family members to help mm. them through this time. And they're working remotely to so their jobs that were maybe in Nebraska when they were previously working in Chicago, for example. Um, and they have now moved, they've up their life, their kids and everything else to, to go and live with family members again. The chances of them actually moving back to um, where they used to live is very unlikely. So if remote working was to stop, then they would probably look to get a new job, right? And, mm. I, and I think that's partially the same in, in the UK as well, where people have either moved to, to be with family members or they've realised that they can get so much more done 
why do I need to travel and why am I paying these expensive rates for office spaces or even just higher rental properties where they're living or higher higher property values when they could maybe live in a in a lower value property area and get more for their money and still get still get their job done ultimately and increase their their um their living allowances and all that kind of stuff potentially. And I think um there's a few surveys that I've been reading recently and a few data that I think it was on the Irish jobs recruitment platform, um Irish dot and it was um forty percent of people have been saying they're working more hours. Um but even more worrying from that is twenty one percent of the people surveyed were saying that they couldn't switch off from work. And I think as employers and as, as leaders and managers, it's, it's our job to make sure that the people that, that we are hiring and we are helping out day to day can actually turn off and and get some time away from their technology and from their roles because mm. ultimately at some point it's going to have a severe impact on their mental health. Um, and there's, there's, there's other studies as well I've been looking into recently just to try and get a feel for what, what is actually happening and what is the feeling within the population. And I think there's a study by E-Days um, on the Enterprise Times where 60% of people were, were looked and or unsure about returning to an office, and that was on the 23rd of July this year. And we're only a few weeks on from that. Um, that being said, um, I actually returned um, back to an office for the first time in 16 months um, a couple of weeks ago for the first, just, just for a, a face-to-face with a, a couple of, of, of my team members. Um, and it was great. It was fantastic. And I got on the train, I went to London um, and felt safe. I didn't have any problems personally. Um, we had our meeting, we left and everything was great. Fast forward up until last week um, when I went into, into the city and boy, has that changed. I still felt safe, but the amount of people mm. and how busy the capital was, was almost akin to what it was like before COVID. Um, and I think that's where people are going to have to really understand as leaders and managers on the individual's comfort levels on whether they're happy to come back to an office or not. Um, personally, for me, I, I think technology is there to enable people to work from wherever they want to work, ultimately. Um, and there shouldn't be any barriers to doing that unless it's obviously a physical job where you have to be there face-to-face or touching and feeling the, the tools that you're using day-to-day. I think there are a couple of really important points to actually take away from that. Um, I think that given that people have shown that they can be productive from home, we have seen a lot of enhanced trust between leaders and employees during the last 16 months. But now leaders have got to really sort of go on the front foot and be very careful about how they manage their people. I think you're absolutely right, because... On the one hand, there is the mental health issue of what are the long-term effects of blurring that line between work and home life and how easy is it for people to sort of step away from work if they're doing it at home. But also with restrictions lifting, among the more sort of brazen people who do like to sort of get out and do things, I suppose that there's more room for distractions during the day-to-day and then that also that working productivity that we've seen going up during this time, that could also just easily go down as well, isn't it? So as workforce models change, like leaders have really got to sort of focus on how they manage this, haven't they? And that's got to be done incredibly carefully. I think, I think what's, what's happened is it's forced leaders to, to remove the concept of presenteeism, mm-hmm. being able to see people that they're doing their job to actually judging people based on their qualities, the work that they're doing. And, for me, that is that is the ultimate goal anyway. Um, just because somebody sat there in front of a desk and you can see them doesn't mean they're doing a good job. 
Um, so now being able to allow them the flexibility while still getting the output that you as a leader are after, then ultimately, yes, is it? We're always after more, right? We always want more for less. Um, but there's an element of making sure that, that you're getting the same and a little bit more, hopefully, than what you were getting before um, COVID came around. I think on, on the whole, um, people working from home during lockdowns and COVID and things, though, there's been quite a big, a few companies that have come out into the public domain and done a, a carte blanche statement that, that people will work from home forever. We're going to close offices down and all those kind of things. Mm. And I think I think that's great um, for reducing the amount of people traveling, the sustainability aspects of it and all those kind of things. But the, the issue for me there is, is that we're making a pretty broad assumption that every person wants to or can work from home. And they may have done it over the last 12 months, but they may not have been working from home. They might have just been managing from home. In a one-bedroom apartment, there's no space, no duty of care, no desk height, no ergonomic keyboards, all that kind of stuff. And they've got a bad back over the last 12 months where they've been sat on their bed working and all that kind of stuff. I think that we just, as, as employers, we need to sit back and go, what is the, the state of our nation, ultimately, the state of our company, and understand what we can and can't do, rather than maybe just looking at the, uh, the bottom line uh, savings that we might make by allowing people to work from home full-time. Mm. Um, I know personally for me, um, I've, I've worked from home for a very long time. Um, uh, well, I'm employed to work from home, but whether I'm at home or not, another question. Um, but the, the, the key thing for me is, is that I have a choice. And I actually like that. I like to go in the office one or two days a week for that social interaction, that water cooler conversation. And so also, I personally feel getting people in a room, whiteboarding, throwing things around, saying this is what we should look like, this is what we can maybe do next. For as much as I'm a technologist now with technology, you can't beat doing that face-to-face. I think that's very right. I think we do need both, don't we? And that's why maybe a hybrid by design working model could be the way of the future because one size does not fit all with the remote working side of things. And the reason I say that is because it's exactly what you said. People sometimes don't necessarily have the space. I mean, it's all well and good for somebody who's got maybe a big garden area to sit in when the weather's nice. But if you are in a one bedroom apartment in London, for example, and space is very limited, it can get quite lonely when you're working away in there and maybe don't have the facilities as well. And even then, there's also that sort of digital divide that we've seen, which has really blighted things like the education sector, for instance, but also connection to fast enough Wi-Fi and broadband speeds. That is a real problem for some people spread around the country, isn't it? So that's another thing that we're going to have to consider moving forward and scaling up if working from home and that hybrid working model is going to be the way of it in the future. Yeah, and, and I completely agree. I live in, in the uh, almost the middle of nowhere with really, really slow connectivity um and as of september with a new provider coming into the area i'll be able to get fiber to premise so i'll actually have 250 uh, meg of download 50 meg of upload which is let's just say 100 times more than what i get today <laughs> um the, the the key thing though is that there's always ways and means around this stuff with technology whether that's using satellite whether that's using lte whether that's using um the broadband connections and multiple broadband connections to aggregate links together there's lots of ways of doing this stuff, but it can become expensive. And at that point, it becomes a, a cost to the business where they want to make a decision on whether that's, that's fit for purpose or not. I think there's, um, there's a whole duty of care element of allowing people to work from home um, during the pandemic. So if you think about an office space, um, you'll have a, a facilities team and a states team. You'll have someone that's looking at um, 
the desk spaces, the higher the desk, the chairs that you're using, all that kind of stuff. And everything's rated to a certain level to allow you to spend X amount of hours in a, in a seat. Um, that's not the case when everyone's been working from home. And I think there'll be more and more that comes out as we maybe get into this, this hybrid working model where the more of the population are working from home on a permanent basis, that that extension of duty of care will be provided back to the um, from the employer to the individual to actually make sure they've got the right setup to keep themselves safe. Exactly um, right. It's, it's going to be an interesting time, I think, over the next few months. I think there was, um, I think it was yesterday, um, where DHSC have come out to put it on hold to return to work um, mm. for um, September, I think it was. They're looking at getting eight, everyone coming back at least eight days a week, eight days a month, sorry, eight days a week, that'd be miraculous. <laughs> um, eight days a month, uh, and they've decided to, to put that on hold for now. And due to the increases of COVID numbers and things as well. So I think everyone's still finding their feet of around it, how comfortable they are around returning back to an office. And I think employers can only do so much on that. It's, it's down to the individuals that they've employed. Exactly. And one thing that's down to that individual as well is how they manage that sort of work-life balance with the flexible model, as we sort of touched on already. Um, as somebody yourself, Kyle, who's had a lot of experience, of course, working from home, um, are there any sort of techniques that you sort of personally use that sort of help you kind of switch off when you need to from sort of work within the home and then you sort of can step away from that, take that step back and recharge the batteries when you need to? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm very fortunate. Um, and I, I've for many years ensured I've had a separate working um, environment. So a little garden office, a shed, whatever it might be, uh, the spare bedroom. Uh, and, and basically use that door or that building divide as the, the cutoff between work and life. Um, because that's where it becomes a challenge where you then end up sat on your sofa working and then you're on your sofa all day and all night. So I think being able to put a, a physical divide between what is work and what is life can really help you to distinguish between the two. I think the, the other thing for me is, is putting some kind of structure around your day. Um, everyone talks around, yes, I would have had an hour, two-hour commute to the office every day and an hour and two-hour commute back. Well, that now means you can do something more productive at that time. doesn't necessarily mean that you need to work. It could be doing some education. It could be um, reading up on some of the news articles. It could be seeing your family members. It could be doing something with the kids. It could be whatever you want it to do, but maybe use that time for non-work-related activities. Mm. Or I personally um, have taken... Some of that time, so if I base it on their two-hour journey to work, if I was going to, to London, for example, uh, I've taken an hour for the family, and I've taken an hour to do my prep and my social media updates, and also to do my to-do list for the day. So that when I start at nine o'clock, I am ready and roaring to go, and then I make sure that I have my lunch hour booked in every day to get away from the desk, to go for a walk, walk the dog, get some fresh air, get away from the screen, and then come back again fresh-eyed to start again in the afternoon. And I think putting that structure around your day can really help you as an individual to, to get away from the, the machines a bit and get out into the fresh air or at least get into your family and make sure everyone's okay. Um, I think structure is one of the key things for me. The other thing that I would strongly advise is sticking to times on meetings um, as well as making sure there's an agenda and all those things that we say are good things to have on a on a, on a virtual meeting or in a face-to-face meeting. Just make sure they're in place because the amount of virtual meetings you can attend will cancel fulfill your day. Like you could be on a, a Microsoft Teams, Zoom, WebEx session um, for nine hours a day and get 
in some cases, zero productive work done. So making sure you've got those agendas, the goals of the meetings, making sure that everyone's got one thing to take away from them, making sure that you've got focused time within your diaries to go away and do the job you're employed to do as well as the meeting is, is, is key. And one of the things that, that for anybody that uses Microsoft 365 mm. um, with the Exchange Online platform and, and all the rest of the productivity tools set within that Microsoft stack, um, within Outlook, now you have the insights if you're on Exchange Online. And you'll have an email every day that tells you the amount of time you're in your emails and how unproductive you might be being because of um, the amount of virtual meetings you're having and how packed your diary is. It means you haven't got time to go away. And actually, the insights and analytics platform within Microsoft is telling you to book time for your lunch. It's telling you to create focus time in your diary to do stuff rather than just meetings and phone calls. Um, I'm a big advocate that a, meet, a virtual meeting should be no more than 30 minutes. Mm. Um, Anything more than that, people have started to drift away into BAU, do their emails, social media, Twitter, kids walked in, whatever it might be. If you can do that one-hour meeting split into 2.30s, I would strongly advise that. I think there are some incredibly important points to take away from that as well. I think that sort of 30-minute time frame is incredibly important because distractions do start to creep in. I think you're absolutely right. But also this idea of you're saving time on the commuter, for example, by working from home. And where is that other time actually going? Because um, productivity may have gone up because for this period of time, people have been giving that back to work. But over a longer period, you're finding that you're working longer as a result of that, aren't you? So you do have to use that as some form of downtime as well for yourself to help prepare, to help get ready. And I think that some of those things that you've talked about there, using it to sort of educate yourself, get the mind flowing, sort of plan your tasks for the day. I think that's maybe a little bit of a better use of time, isn't it? And also better for the mental health side of things as well. And when it comes to leadership, I think we've become so much more aware of the importance of mental health and well-being over the last 16 months, haven't we? And we're much braver in talking about it than perhaps we were before. Yeah, and, and I think as, as leaders and managers, I think it's, it's our responsibility to, to lead by example. If we're not doing these things and we're packing our diaries, we've back to back meetings all day, not having lunch and all those kind of things, how can we expect our, the people that work for us and with us to do anything different? If you're on at 9 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, send an email, it becomes an expectation for your team and the wider teams that you must work at that time as well. And that's not the case. So I think as leaders, it's, it's up to us to make sure that we are working in the way that we want others around us to work as well. Um, I think. The other, the other worry as a leader um, across lots of businesses I've been speaking to recently is the, the considerable amounts of annual leave that are left remaining to be taken by individuals. Because during the pandemic, people haven't taken their leave. They've got it carried over from last year. Um, they couldn't go on holiday. And what we're finding in a lot of organizations that I'm talking to at the moment is that August <laughs> this, this month, and September and so on and so forth, there's a lot of people not in work. One, because of kids and kids in school, holidays, school holidays, but also because travel bans are being removed. People can now go back on holiday. And people and there's a lot of people booking one or two week holidays away, which is fantastic news. But at the same time as leaders, it's for us to manage how that leave is taken so that we're not left with just no people on the ground. And I'm seeing that a lot of the moment in the customers that I work with, a lot in the public sector as well, where they've been mm. pretty busy during the pandemic because of what's been going on. A lot of them have started taking annual leave now as well, so they can now go on holiday. And it does pose a challenge when you can't get the right people um, into the meetings and into the workshops and things that you might need to do to get change done. 
Exactly right. And that only puts pressure on the CEO as well. And we've talked about the impact of sort of leaders having to lead by example and not burn themselves out by working crazy hours and answering emails beyond sort of 10 p.m. at night. And when you've sort of been sucked into that survival mode over the last year and a bit of, you know, I've got to do everything I can. I've got to pull out all the traps to keep my business going and really make sure that I'm rallying my team it can be easy to get sucked into that mentality, can't it? I mean, even before the pandemic, yeah. I mean, it was so easy for business leaders to be going full pelt constantly in the running of their business. And when you're in that survival mode, I mean, you're, there's even more of a temptation, isn't there? So it's sort of breaking away from that as well. I think anybody that uses email as their, their primary communication tool, right? Because obviously there's the instant messaging platforms and whatnot as well. If, you're, if you've written an email at 10 o'clock at night, my strong advice is you do not send it. My strong advice is that you put a delay send on that message for nine, five past nine in the morning, right? And by the time you come online, you'll have five or 10 minutes then just to quickly proofread that email. Make sure you're happy with the tone. Make sure you're happy with the way that it's got the language being written. Make sure that the content in there is relevant after you've been writing it late at night before it gets sent out automatically. And that way you can still work into an evening if you so please. But no one else needs to know about it until five past nine the next day. I think that's very, very right. On the basis of, mm. Yeah, that's on the basis that you work 9 till 5, right? <laughs> Rather than on the shift. Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Because like I say, working hours can be so, so different now because there is that flexibility, isn't there? And a lot of business leaders we've seen have been giving their workers sort of that little bit of time to basically say, you don't have to work nine to five. Um, as long as obviously your work is done, it doesn't necessarily matter when you do it. So there's also that side of things as well, of people sort of changing their calendars to work around sort of family and life commitments. And that presents another challenge for leaders to try and deal with, isn't it? Just to try and keep that coherence there. Yeah, it, it does. And I think as much as we can empathize with the situations everyone's in and the way that we can be flexible to allow what's been happening for the last 16 to 18 months to still continue whilst building the plans for business changes we move forward. Um, there's a lot of organizations that I've been working with recently who through the pandemic have been keeping the lights on. They've been doing what they had to do. They've got quite a lot of technical debt now lying around for, through just throwing in technology to keep the lights on ultimately. And now we're reassessing what their business plans are and mapping their technology roadmaps to that business plan to make sure now we can accelerate their next journey of growth or the next journey of return to work, whatever their, their strategic themes are, to ensure that technology is at the heart of that. So as, as a, a potential of another pandemic in the future or whatever comes down the line, it doesn't mm. take them offline. So how does their business react to this, but then also how does technology enable them to, to overcome this in the years to come as well? As well as rec exactly. recruiting talent from further apart. Mm. I think um, there's a pretty good study, I think, from the NHS where the government are releasing more money for radiology um, because the number of radiologists in the country are quite quite small. They're all quite spread out across the country. So being able to do remote radiology services um, would be fantastic. And you can do it. The technology allows you to do it. It's just not accredited to do so in a lot of cases um, for the right resolution and pixels and detail you need to make a, a medical decision. Um, if you actually speak to a lot of the, the radiologists that are using this, this tool and these proof of concepts that have been deployed during the pandemic to allow remote radiology, they feel that, the, that it's, it's just as good, if not, as what they had when they were on site. So it's now getting down to the legislative side of it to say, right, the technology can do it, the people believe in it. Now we need to rewrite what we've got written in the Ten Commandments to mm -hmm. allow us to, to actually take this forward. 
um, rather than just hoping that we don't get caught out in the future. Mm. And it is going to be a time of all changes, isn't it? Particularly over the next 12 months as we sort of feel our way into this period of no restrictions um, and hopefully of economic recovery as well as a result of that. But with the pandemic trajectory sort of still being quite uncertain, what are some of your priorities do you think going to be at CDW UK moving forward into this period? And ideally, when we get to this point, maybe in 2022, what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved and sort of worked on by then? So CDW as a business, um, I'll struggle to comment because the, we're a public listed entity, so there's certain things that, that I'm, allowed, I'm not allowed to say. Of course. Um, but from, from my perspective, what I'm trying to achieve in my team is to get closer to our customers, understand the challenges, understand what they're trying to achieve, and create packages and go-to-markets for our business that enables them to do theirs, that we can repeat against other organizations. Because if we can repeat things, we can do things at scale, we can do it fast, we can do it stronger. And we can then still get the right outcome for our customers whilst making ourselves operationally efficient. Um, I think the other elements that, that is allowing me and my role is to understand how we bring our customers together as well. So bringing our customers as a customer advisory board, bringing in a group of different individuals from around the country and around our different verticals to actually share what they've been doing as well. And I'm a, I'm a very big advocate of community, bringing people together, sharing ideas and, and having good, strong debate. And I want to bring that into, into CDW as well, where we bring our customers together and have those conversations as well. Um, if I look at what the priorities are within the customers that I've been dealing with recently and how that's affecting the way that we as CDW engage, um, it ultimately, it has been returned to work. I think a lot of the cases that, that is now almost done in a lot of cases. A lot of organizations have a return to work plan and a technology roadmap and all those kind of things. What it now is about is sitting down and addressing the technical debt that they've got. And that's very consultative. So sitting around the table, understanding what they've done and why they did it, how it worked, what they, the, the, the pitfalls of how on that journey and how do we bring that back together? And then how do we make sure that everything's secure by design based on what they've implemented as well? So as we move forward, we can make sure that everything is, is nice and pulled together. Um, and the final thing for me is just partnerships. Uh -huh. The way that we like to work is to ensure that we are providing value to our customers. Obviously, we're getting value back in return because of a typical business model. Um, and just to make sure that we're active listening. We're understanding what our customers want so that we can provide them with the services and solutions they need to accelerate their business model. That, that's, that's the core thing for me, listening to our customers and adapting where we need to adapt. And I think there's going to be a great deal of that, even more so over the course of the next few months as we get into the grips of that post-COVID world, hopefully providing the pandemic doesn't make a comeback. And um, I think, Carl, actually, just given how insightful it's been having you joining us on the podcast this morning, I'd actually love to sort of welcome you back onto the show maybe eight, nine months down the line just to see how things are changing and what that sort of offering is bringing forward and what is being demanded in the market because it is going to be a time of all change and it would be good to sort of just review a little bit down the line and see just how things have altered from this point. Yeah, 100%. I'm happy to come on and share my views and ideas. Yeah, I'd certainly love that as well, Carl. Thoroughly enjoyed having you with us on the show today. I mean, it's been a real pleasure having you joining us as well. And just lastly, before we do depart, though, please do take care and stay safe with all that's still going on as well, because we're not quite out of the woods with this yet, but I'm confident that we're sort of headed for better days. Yeah, 100% agree. And thank you very much for having me on, Scott. It's been fantastic. 
It was a pleasure welcoming Kyle Davies of CDW UK onto today's programme, and I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed a compelling interview. Uh, next up on the show, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Chairman of the Leaders' Council, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett will be sharing his take on the events of the last 16 months of the COVID pandemic, as well as his hopes for the weeks and the months ahead when we enter this period, hopefully, of what will prove to be an economic recovery. That will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up 
inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, 
they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because 
Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports, and this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the 
for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it 
tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, 
that has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the 
confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, the the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.